when you think about disability rights, what is the picture that comes into your mind? All bodies are actually confined by ability, race, gender, sexuality, class, nation, state, religion, and much more. And we can't separate those things. The topic for today's podcast is Leading for Inclusion, a conversation with Adra Davey. Unpacking Education is brought to you by AVID.org. AVID believes in seeing the potential of every student. To learn more about AVID, visit their website at avid.org. Welcome to Unpacking Education, the podcast where we explore current issues and best practices in education. I'm Rena Clark. I'm Paul Beckerman. And I'm Winston Benjamin. We are educators. And we're here to share insights and actionable strategies. Education is our passport to the future. Our quote for today is from Jennifer Spencer Ames and Josh Flossie. True belonging begins with a seat at the table. It develops with access to the same rigorous content and thinking routines. And it becomes truly inclusive when all students make a valuable contribution to one another and to the classroom and the school community. I'm not going to break into song, but I'm thinking (laughs) about a scene from Hamilton (laughs) where they sing the rooms where it happens. Mm -hmm. If you're not in the room, or in other words, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're kind of left outside of the process. So I like how the quote builds on that, though, and talks about the importance of preparing the participants who are going to be at the table so that when they get there, they can be successful because being there is just not enough. And then once you're there, you also need to be included in the conversation and process. So it's like be there, be prepared, be included. There's there's multiple parts to that. Mm. I appreciate you bringing those three perspectives in. I 100% agree with you that it's not just being at the table, it's being actively welcomed there. So what are the ways that um, the situation and conversations actually allow the others to be heard? Um, And that takes time for the teachers and those in power to make choices. And I appreciate this point being more about those in power making those active choices to include the individuals as well. It's not just say they're in the room. It's what are the other things you're doing to put that um, that chance out there for them to be included. And I'm excited to dig in a little more around this topic. Um, and I'm actually going to be honest, I stole that quote from our guest because I am really lucky. I am a, a student in one of her classes in my graduate program. Um, and I've been learning so much and constantly shifting my thinking and my practices as a re- result. So I just really want to welcome Adra Davey. So welcome. Thank you. And just so our listeners have a little bit better understanding, could you just share a little bit about yourself and kind of your role and what you do? Sure. So again, my name's Adra Davey. Um, I've been an educator for over 30 years. Uh, I was a teacher for 20 of those years, and I taught in a variety of settings and a variety of school districts from general education to Uh, self-contained special education to fully inclusive classrooms. And I think the fully inclusive classrooms are really what got me on the path that I am now. Uh, I was a special education director for eight years, and I've moved into the teaching and learning department now and am the director of just education. And my focus in my district now is really on how do we make our schools and classrooms have 
high access and unconditional belonging for all students in the core instruction in the general education classrooms. Um, and then as my side project, my love, I teach in the Danforth Educational Leadership Program at the University of Washington, and that's where I met Rena. Well, we're glad you're here. Yeah, awesome. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being here. So I'll ask the first question, Adra. You know, there's been a shift from disability rights to disability justice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about the shift and what disability justice is? Sure. So I think the disability rights movement was a very political strategy. Um, its aim was to um, garner civil rights for people with disabilities. And like a lot of rights movements, it really focused on the bureaucratic sector and advocacy organizations, um, service provision agencies, and membership organizations, and really centered people who can gain power from a rights-based movement, which isn't really appropriate for all people and didn't really address those that can still wield power from that kind of framework. Mm. And so what I like to ask people is when you think about disability rights, what is the picture that comes into your mind? And for a lot of people, it's a white guy in a wheelchair. And so that was kind of the center of the disability rights movement was people who are white and physically disabled. So thereby leaving out all of the other intersectionalities and all of the other disabilities, right? So the shift, I think, to justice really centers people who have disabilities mm. as the center of the movement. And, and it's kind of a grassroots movement from people with disabilities. And I think, you know, one of the limitations of the rights movement is it didn't really think about intersectionality. And there is so much intersectionality when you're thinking about disability and race and um, people who struggle with poverty, um, multilingual learners, there's tons of intersectionality there. And a lot of those populations of people get over-identified actually for special education. So I think, you know, there's lots of definitions out there about disability justice. And I think the assertions that they come from are kind of important to understand if you want to kind of talk about those. So people with disabilities assert that all bodies are unique and essential all bodies have strengths and needs that must be met. We are powerful not despite the complexities of our bodies, but because of them. Mm. And then all bodies are actually confined by ability, race, gender, sexuality, class, nation, state, religion, and much more. And we can't separate those things. One of my favorite definitions is from Patty Brene, and she just says, disability justice is a vision and practice of yet to be. So I think we're at the beginning of a real movement here that's eking its way into education. Mm -hmm. mm. I appreciate the universalization of that concept of how all individuals are connected to the rights and justice of um, this movement. A lot of times people have their own conceptual ideas of several vocabulary words and context around this community. So I would just like to try to have you give a little bit more um, nuanced discussion about what is ableism. And then I have a follow-up question, a couple of follow-up questions to that um, once you provide us some um, foundation to understand the concept. Okay. 
So sort of the definition of ableism is what you're looking for at this moment. I'm going to actually read from my notes so that I don't (laughs) leave something out that's really important with the definition of ableism. Appreciate that. So it is a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on socially constructed ideas of normality, intelligence, excellence, desirability, and productivity. It is also the beliefs or practices that devalue or discriminate against people with disabilities based on that assumption that people with disabilities need to change or be fixed, thereby neglecting the responsibility to adapt or design for various disabilities. Mm. So it's a very ability to understand. So here's a follow-up question. What is ableist language so that we're able to recognize how our words frame individuals in those ways? Right. And I think that's a really good question because for a lot of people, I think we're just starting to learn about ableism. Mm -hmm. And in order to disrupt it, you have to understand what it is and when you see it or hear it. Mm -hmm. And I think language is a real... It was a real entry point for me in thinking about ways that I speak and ways that I hear other people speak that is ableist. So if you think back to um, when people used to say, like, that's so gay, Mm -hmm. and that was a negative connotation, right? Mm -hmm. But we still do that with disabilities. That's so lame. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like lame means that you can't walk, or when you do walk, you walk with pain. Mm -hmm. So how can something that's negative be called lame when that's an actual disability for people and it's painful Mm -hmm. right or i hear a lot you know they're just blind to fill in the blank okay blindness is an actual disability and if i'm blind it doesn't mean that i ignore important things about topics or values or people right one that i've been working on getting out of my vocabulary is that's so crazy Okay, do I really mean when I say I hear an idea and I think, oh, that's crazy? Or do I think, gosh, that's a really hard thing to think about? Or that was a really hard conversation that I had with that person. I don't mean that's crazy. Like that's an actual disability for somebody to have. I appreciate the focus on being explicit with what you're trying to say, because we do slide into those um, colloquials easily. A last question that I have is, how does ableism impact this idea of inclusivity and belonging in school and in our society? Yeah, so I think when you think about our society and our schools, they are built on the way able-bodied people do and think. Mm. And so... I think the standards that we have in schools and societies ask people to conform to a non-disabled way of thinking or being or doing. Mm. And so when you have that narrow of a focus, you are by default excluding people that don't fit into that standard. So I think what it leads to is we have to have an intentional focus on universally designing our classrooms, our spaces, our instruction, our curriculum, our resources, so that the the standard is accepting of all abilities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And and maybe we can dig a little bit deeper into that because 
I do see this non-disabled way of thinking permeate the educational system. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of some specific examples that educators or educator leaders could do to address ableism in schools. Yes. So I think one author that I have read about that gives some specific examples, especially for educational leaders, um, is DeMatthews. And he talks about, first of all, thinking about rejecting the, the idea of normalcy. So, you know, the idea of average is actually a construct. There's, there's no such thing as an average learner. Everybody has patterns of strengths and weaknesses. And so we need to be thinking about, you know, how do we continue to have high expectations for all learners and realize that the variability in the learning is a strength and designing for that so that all students can reach that high high expectation. Universal design for learning is a really good structural way for educators to think about that. I think DeMatthews also talks about the problematic idea of singular identities. And this includes families, students, and our own staff that we work with, because we all have patterns of strengths and weaknesses. We all have what's called learner variability. And we really should be thinking in ways that how do we encourage so that all staff can work with all families and all students, stop this siloing and this categorical segregation of everybody in the school system. Um, I think he also talks about thinking in strength-based ways. So thinking of disability and learner variability as a strength and how do we draw on the strengths of all people. Thinking about an interdisciplinary lens as well. And so just continuing to, to keep your own learning at the forefront about what are systems that are in still continue to be not just for our students and how they affect students, particularly who have multiply marginalized identities. How do we center the voices from those margins in our work? And then I think the, the last one I would say is really we are activists. When we know better, we need to do better. And so we need to be activists for the voices from the margins. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that input. My question is about inclusion. You know, some people might not have a very clear definition of that. So what is inclusion and what are inclusive practices? Why is this and why is this important, I guess? Okay. So I think, you know, like anything, you can find a hundred definitions of inclusion that contain different pieces. I think my favorite one comes from the book Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity. And they say in that book, inclusion is not a strategy to help people fit into the systems and structures which exist in our societies. It is about transforming those systems and structures to make it better for everyone. Inclusion is about creating a better world for everyone. And specifically to schools, I would say it's about It's a promise to our students that each one of them will be a valued expert learner and a contributing member of the school society. I like that. Inclusion is a promise. So how do, so what does that look like in action? So what kind of practices might illustrate that that promise is taking hold? Yeah. And I think, you know, this is where our fantastic and wonderful educators that are in the classrooms can really come into play. Because inclusive practices, there's a lot of them, right? It's a, but it's a package of things that educators intentionally put into practice. So 
not just intend to, but are intentional about putting these practices into place. And they're put into place to ensure that all students have a sense of belonging and are also meaningfully accessing the core instruction. So it's high access and unconditional belonging. And, you know, there's several that I've seen can work in conjunction with each other to really bring about this transformation that we're talking about. Universal Design for Learning, I've already talked about that one. And that's so that all students meaningfully access the core instruction. And then multi-tiered systems of supports ensures that each student gets what they need right when they need it. And then co-teaching ensures that students who already have an IEP or already in special education can receive their specially designed instruction in the general education classroom where they need to be learning to apply it anyway. So I think, you know, when we think about those, if they're implemented with intention in a general education classroom, we can start to unpack those standards that rely on being able and move it to how do we change the system so that they include everyone. I appreciate you delineating the difference between intentionality and intent. I really appreciate that as a process. Um, And you were speaking about the general ed setting. So I have a question for you around that. According to data, who do you are? Who are the students that are most likely to be pulled away from that gen ed setting um, in your context so that we have able to see who we're talking about? Right. So I think, you know, when you tour a school, it can become more clear to you who is not in gen ed. And so I think for sure students with significant disabilities like an intellectual disability or significant health disability will often be in a segregated classroom. Students who are multilingual learners oftentimes will get in special ed um, because it will be seen as a learning disability and it's hard to to separate that from a language learning Mm. process um, and may become more segregated over time. Um, Students who are experiencing poverty um, oftentimes because whatever is coming to the learning environment looks like a disability to people, they may start pulling them away from gen ed settings. I think students who exhibit behavior that can be challenging for staff to deal with Mm. um, oftentimes will get pulled away from gen ed settings. Um, Yeah. I I appreciate you helping us take that tour with you because now I'm seeing the the building in in a better context. Um, I just have another question and I know it's harmful for the students who are pulled out of the classroom, but how is this harmful for all students? And what might we do about this impact on our students? Yeah. So I think one thing to know is there is actually a large body over 80 years of research that that tells us that the outcomes for students are better in inclusive settings. And that's not just for the students that have typically been excluded. It's for the students who are also already included to have everybody's voice at the table. Everyone learns more, both socially and academically, in an inclusive setting. And, you know, something I've been thinking about lately is how does the student who's in general education feel or think or start to think that they're the educators in the building believe when they see that certain kids are not included? Mm. What does that mean to them? Mm. 
I was just going to say, I think the other thing is that there's really a lot of social justice implications here when we think about the fact that we are segregating populations of students. We've known for a very long time that separate is not equal. So our students in segregated classrooms are not getting the same rigorous education that students in general ed are. A lot of times in education, we like to say all means all. But when we look at segregated classrooms, do we mean it? So there's a mismatch between what we believe and what we're doing. And then I think also when we do segregate students away from the gen ed setting, we are we're contributing to that ableist idea that the barriers exist within the students instead of within the system. And then another thing I would say is we're moving away from from viewing learner variability as a strength. And we aren't presuming the competence of our students, our staff, and our families to be able to benefit from this kind of society. You've given us a lot to think about already. Um, Strategies and and concepts and just awareness pieces. I think with that, we're going to hop into our toolkit. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. What's in the toolkit? What what is in the toolkit? What's in the toolkit? Check it out. Rena, why don't uh, why don't you drop something into our toolkit first? Uh, so Adris mentioned this a lot of times, but I just want to point out um, universal design for learning. There's a lot of resources out there that you can access. A lot of great books. There's, um, I believe there's even some stuff on Avid Open Access as well. What I like about universal design for learning is that this idea of even though you're designing for the margins, it's inclusive of all. So it's kind of as Adrian just said, it's better for everybody. So that's what, I, what I'll put out there for the toolkit. I love that one, Rena. There's, there's so many places to dig into UDL. I, I think it's, it's just a wide ranging. We're going to have to maybe do a follow up. Maybe another episode. (laughs) On UDL, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Winston, what would you like to drop into the toolkit? Uh, The one thing that I would love to drop in the toolkit is this idea about intentionality instead of intending, right? We all know that UDL and all of these strategies exist. What are the things that you're doing in your planning time? that actually will allow students to be included, right? What are you, how are you doing the work? As we said, we are activists. When I heard that, I was called to action, so I love it. Nice. Mine is an awareness. I think we need to be aware of ourselves and what we're doing. I was really struck by the conversation around language. You know, that's so lame, that's crazy, don't be blind, things like that. I think a lot of us say that and don't really think about what we're saying and what impact what we're saying has on somebody else. So we need to listen to ourselves, be more self-aware, and really think about the consequences of the words that we choose. Hmm. Adro, would you like to add something to our toolkit? Like, What's one actionable thing that you believe would be a good start for teachers or, or something for them to act on? Well, I'm thinking about our last Danforth class, Rena. <laughs> And how sometimes just an entry point into UDL, Universal Design for Learning, is is hard because it is a big framework. But one thing I've been thinking about is when you have one upcoming lesson, just look at your learning target and think, if I had a student in my class who is deaf and I have a student in my class who is blind, and I'm going to add one more arena that I didn't do in our class, and I have a student in my class 
who doesn't communicate verbally, what would I have to do with this learning target to reach all those students? I do. I just love that question. And now taking it back to some teachers I work with, I just think that's just such a I don't know, blunt way to think about it that makes it more accessible when you're thinking, oh, okay, just that one thing. It's time for that one thing. It's it's time for our one thing, ladies and gentlemen. What's the one thing that you're taking away from this moment, from this conversation? I'm going to pass it off to Rena. What's the one thing you're thinking about? I, I just love the line where you talked about it's not about conforming or having students conform or teachers conform. It's about transforming, transforming systems and structures so they are accessible. Mm. Paul? I was just going to say, I'm thinking about that comment that Adria made that inclusion is a promise and that around that promise is we need to make sure our practices are intentional. We need to take action intentionally. I, I totally agree about taking action intentionally. And um, I appreciate the idea that there is no singular identity, right, where um, all of our students are overlapping places. And how do we really make sure that we don't falsely equate language learning with a disability, right? So thinking clearly about how do we identify students as a powerful term for me. Adria, you get a chance to jump into our one thing too. What's a final thought you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Yeah, I'm, I'm really thinking about the quote that Rena started us off with and about how I think for a long time we've been trying to, to do a seat at the table and we're still not even there. So how do we just move beyond that to the belonging part? Well, you're probably all walking away with a lot of things, I, a lot of things you can do, maybe some new information. I know that this is this whole topic has been eye-opening. Just this idea of language, even with my own children, I've been practicing. And it's it's now that I know, as we said, I have to do better. I have to make those shifts and make those shifts with educators as well. But I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be here today, Adria. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for having me. This was super fun. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking y'all will we'll probably hear from Adria again. Maybe we'll do a follow-up around UDL or some other topic. But we appreciate you, and we look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Unpacking Education. We invite you to visit us at avidopenaccess.org where you can discover resources to support student agency, equity, and academic tenacity to create a classroom for future-ready learners. We'll be back here next Wednesday for a fresh episode of Unpacking Education. And remember, go forth and be awesome. Thank you for all you do. You make a difference.